Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Crafasi. Today, we're talking with Nathan Bridges about adrenal fatigue. Here's a clip from today's show. When you talked about symptoms, I mean, HPA dysfunction, the symptoms can range from fatigue to low mood. Those are really common ones. Sleep issues, anxiousness, feeling on edge. Then you get into it affecting cognition, like poor focus and brain fog. It affects the reproductive system. So people can get decreased libido. It affects blood sugar. So it can affect cravings. It affects your immune response, which is super important today. So it's very important to see what's going on in the system and kind of where people are at with their HP axis dysfunction and to not just assume, oh, it's low or high and to do a comprehensive neuroendocrine assessment. That's just a small taste of the great show we've got coming up. Rupa Health is the best way to order, track, and get results from 20-plus lab companies in a single place. Nathan Bridges is the clinical support manager at Sinesco International, a biomedical laboratory company. Mr. Bridges is an accomplished and highly experienced clinical manager who regularly reviews hundreds of personal laboratory reports from doctors and practitioners and has helped facilitate the launch of new laboratory biomarkers for Sinesco International. Mr. Bridges has a passion for neuroendocrine assessment and for the past five years has worked under the guidance of Sinesco's chief medical officer, Dr. Roy Watkins where he regularly reviews medical literature related to HPA axis dysfunction and neurotransmitters. Nathan, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast here today. Thanks so much for coming on. Anthony, thanks so much for having me. Really, really appreciate it. Excited to talk about stress and HPA axis dysfunction with you. Absolutely. I think today's conversation is going to be super helpful to everybody listening, because this is just such a common issue in our society, in our entire world, really. And so we have a lot to talk about today. But before we begin, first and foremost, I really, really want to set the stage and an understanding here today so that everybody really is clear on what we're talking about when we say adrenal fatigue. And so I really want you to give our listeners an understanding of this because we know that this word adrenal fatigue is sort of a misnomer when we're really talking about HPA or hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis dysfunction. So can you please explain the difference to our audience between adrenal fatigue and this HPA axis dysfunction? Yeah, yeah. Really, really interesting point there about some of the nomenclature surrounding how we talk about stress-related disorders of the HPA axis. You know, and I've been really curious and kind of following this debate, integrative functional medicine industry of what is the most appropriate thing to call adrenal fatigue. And like you said, yeah, I mean, it could potentially be a little bit misleading. I'm not particularly partial to either phrasing. I think one could rationalize the use of that term because, I mean, do people experience fatigue related to the adrenal glands? Like, yeah. So it's like maybe a better way to say it would be fatigue related to the adrenals or the adrenal glands or the HPA axis. So I think there, you know, you could make the argument that adrenal fatigue is certainly a fine phrase. But I think where people get a little hung up on it is do the adrenal glands themselves become like fatigued and like burned out? And they're like, I'm not giving you any more. Like, that's it. I'm done. Probably not that probably doesn't happen. So, I mean, I tend to think of adrenal fatigue as low cortisol states due to chronic stress. And I think the term HPA axis dysfunction could mean that, or it could also mean high levels of cortisol or some other type of imbalance within the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. So, I mean, for me, I'm perfectly fine with people calling it HPA axis dysfunction that's certainly fine with me. I'm not offended by that at all. I'm also not offended by adrenal fatigue. So we can call it whatever we want for the purpose of this conversation. Perfect. No, I'm so glad you made that delineation there and that understanding that it is so true. We can have highs and lows 
of dysfunction. It doesn't have to be just severely low or fatiguing in its sense, but I'm glad that you really made that distinction between some of the phrasing and the nomenclature here. So I want to take this a step further right away. And can you talk about what truly adrenal insufficiency is that most people go to their doctor for or that their doctor may Mm. look at primarily and not this underlying, maybe chronic state of HPA axis or adrenal gland, say, dysfunction, we could call it. Yeah, yeah, that's a really great point, Anthony. I think a lot of standard Western allopathic medicine, for all the good that it does, I'm very, very thankful for that. I think one of the areas that falls short is recognizing that there's quite a spectrum of adrenal dysfunction. It's not necessarily all or nothing. And that's, I think, where the allopathic approach to adrenal testing and adrenal therapies, they kind of get it a little bit wrong. I mean, of course, we need therapies and testing full-blown Cushing's disease or full-blown Addison's disease, which is the most severe adrenal dysfunction on both kind of ends of the spectrum that, that a person could have. But as we recognize and understand in the integrative functional medicine, this is not just about diagnosing Cushing's disease or Addison's disease. This is about really helping to kind of lay out a patient's HPA axis and neuroendocrine pattern that could be driving some pretty debilitating symptoms and issues in a patient's life. So it's in what we know in the literature and what we see through statistical analyses and studies is that when you correct this HPA axis dysfunction, even if it's not full-blown Cushing's or Addison's disease, people get better. They have, they lead better quality of life. I saw a study one time that showed that even just the less of a slope, the less of the slope between cortisol points during the day, so the less steepness to their uh, diurnal pattern of cortisol, they had participants had a greater risk of all-cause mortality. So, I mean, the underlying implications for HPA axis dysfunction are huge. I think we're just even beginning, we're just scratching the surface, really, on what this system fully implicates for overall health and well-being. So yeah, I think doing a functional assessment of the HPA axis and neuroendocrine system is hugely important. And I think it's so often overlooked when it could help identify some of the underlying issues for a lot of these common symptoms that patients experience. Nathan, that was such a well-thought-out answer. And I really appreciate you going into the differences between these functional type of approaches that we want to take with patients and really looking at those root causes versus just, again, focusing on just, say, the diagnoses, which, again, can be sometimes more superficial in nature. So really important. Glad that you went over that. So thank you for that. Follow-up question here is, though, how do people develop this HPA axis dysfunction? So we really want to understand that how do these functional imbalances and these root causes really start to brew in patients' histories? And how does it start to turn into symptoms, signs and symptoms, and actually physiological effects where they say, I have to go to the doctor now. I have to get this checked out. Mm. Mm. Yeah, great question. I think one of the main ways, there's all sorts of different ways that HP axis dysfunction can occur. But I think one of the most common ways that this dysfunction in your adrenal system can happen is over time under periods of stress. We know that chronic stress negatively impacts cortisol and the HPA axis. And what I typically see when I'm reviewing test results is that initially under stress, cortisol is high for a lot of people. But the longer those people have been under stress, the more those results tend to read lower and more run down cortisol levels. So I really do think there's a relationship between well, the the kind of stressor, the amount of stress, the intensity of the stress, and the duration of the stress. When you talked about symptoms, I mean, HPA dysfunction, the symptoms can range from fatigue to low mood. Those are really common ones. Sleep issues, anxiousness, feeling on edge. Then you get into it affecting cognition, like poor focus and brain fog. It affects the reproductive system so people can get decreased libido, it affects blood sugar, so it can affect cravings, it affects your immune response, which is super important today. 
So it's very important to see what's going on in the system and kind of where people are at with their HP access dysfunction and to not just assume, oh, it's low or high and to do a comprehensive neuroendocrine assessment. Makes sense, 100%. And you mentioned testing. We're going to get into that a little bit farther into this conversation here today because it's super important and really validates the reason for testing. And as you mentioned, really gives us different types of values as we go on and on for this condition. But let's dive a little bit deeper into this topic of stress as you were just talking about. And I'd like to give our listeners an additional understanding of what's called the fight or flight system and how this works with your hormones such as adrenaline or epinephrine and norepinephrine and cortisol, which as you, as you discussed is the body's major stress hormone. So can you talk a little bit about stress and the different kinds as it relates to this fight or flight or sympathetic nervous system? Sure. Yeah. So to kind of give a big overview of the HPA axis and the stress response, it really all begins in the brain. So stress and perceived stress will stimulate the hypothalamus. And one of the first things that occurs is a signal uh, via the sympathomedullary pathway to release epinephrine and norepinephrine from the adrenal medulla gland. That happens almost instantaneously. So like if you rounded a, a trail and there was a bear, almost instantly you would have a huge dose of epinephrine and norepinephrine to prepare your body to fight the bear or probably run from the bear. It depends on the kind of bear. So that happens almost instantaneously, and that's very useful. And then even I think norepinephrine is even synthesized in the brain like very quickly, even probably a little bit faster than the adrenals are signaled. So that happens almost instantaneously, which is great. I'm glad that a great survival mechanism. A little bit later, so the hormonal response is a little bit slower with the HPA axis. You get a signal from the hypothalamus to, to secrete CRH, corticotropin-releasing hormone, which stimulates the release of ACTH, adrenocorticotropic hormone, from the pituitary. And the pituitary gland then will signal the adrenals to secrete cortisol and DHEA. And then there's a negative feedback loop. So it's like a thermostat like you have in your house. You set the temperature at that desired degree. And once that once the house reaches that amount, that degree of temperature, it, the system turns off. So the hypothalamus is constantly scanning the body to, met, to see, okay, how much cortisol do I have? Do I need more? Do I need less? So there is some kind of natural homeostasis that occurs there. So the cortisol kind of joins the party a little bit late in the game, and that kind of helps sustain this stress response and helps keep people going under chronic stress. Yes, I agree to that 100%. So that makes complete sense. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that feedback system in just a second. But I love how you use the analogy of the bear. And it does depend on the type of bear. And most people would probably run, but some people might freeze and just stay stagnant right there. And, and hopefully that it doesn't jump on them. But I really want to dive into some of the physiological effects that would happen if somebody did see a bear or more likely if somebody is driving in their car and they have a near car accident, right? Similar type of sympathetic fight or flight system response where their body begins flooded with norepinephrine and epinephrine and cortisol and how this starts to, I always like to say, if you see that bear or you're in that near car accident, your body is going to shunt a lot of the energy and blood away from the organs and to the periphery, to the brain. So you can think, run, jump, get away from that bear or whatever you need to do. And so physiologically, how this impacts the body. We know that, as you mentioned, it's going to increase that blood glucose, that blood sugar, so you can think quickly. It's going to drive that sugar into your muscles so you can act quickly. But what it does and long-term effects of this is really what we want to focus on is that what this does is, right, it starts to can start to suppress your stomach acid. It can start to block some of these other effects on the organs. And over time, not everybody's experience a near car crash or a near bear instant every day. But when they do, people know that when they experience a near car accident or an actual car accident, the next day they might wake up and feel like they get hit by a Mack truck because it's such an intense experience for the body physiologically. And so I want to really let, help our listeners understand that we're not experiencing these very intense situations on a daily basis, but chronically day by day by day, all these different types of stressors that we're exposed to, 
How does this impact the body and really start to wear down and essentially wear out the tread on our tires in our physical body? Yeah, yeah. I think the our stress response in the HPA axis is a amazing survival mechanism. And unfortunately, it kind of elicits the same response as to if you're being chased by a bear or a cougar or something, which I guess back in the day before we became uh, civilized was not that common. So, you know, you'd encounter stress every, maybe once a week, you'd have your life threatened or something. I don't know the actual stats on that. But but unfortunately, that same stress system responds in the, basically the same way to stressors today that are occurring much more frequently. So it has, like you were saying, profound effects on overall health and well-being and these organs. I mean, so like when the sympathetic nervous system is, is activated, a number of things happen in the body that these stress hormones are inducing. So your pupils dilate so you can see better. You inhibit your saliva glands. So good luck having a snack. And like you were mentioning too, your stomach acid whoop, goes away. It has stomach acid and stomach activity and digestion is inhibited. It has to, like you were saying, shunt all of its energy to this survival response. So you've got a dilation of the airways to increase oxygen, to increase nutrient delivery. You've got an increased heartbeat and heart rate to pump blood faster, which is really important. You have the release of glucogen or not glucogen, you have glycogen and cortisol induces gluconeogenesis. So helping your body, this helps your body make its own glucose to provide the organs and the cells necessary energy to meet this stress. So yeah, it's a pretty severe response and it totally shuts down reproduction. It's like, I'll reproduce some other time. I've got I've, I've to get away from this stressor. So yeah, and if you do that enough over a long period of time, for example, like the stomach acid, oh, suddenly you're not digesting and absorbing nutrients well enough. And now you've got all these other issues from being nutrient deficient. Yeah. And those affect the neuroendocrine system. You need nutrients for your neuroendocrine system and your HPA axis to work well. So it's quite a nasty positive feedback loop. Yeah. I love how you use the example of the reproductive and the digestion, because as you mentioned, when when this chronic stress is occurring and and like you said, maybe way back when, once a week, we might have a, a near death or a survival experience. Nowadays, it's pretty rare. And yet these lower grade stressors that I'm going to ask you about in just a second, mm. as you mentioned, though, at that point in time, your body is not worried about reproducing or breaking down your food. That's the last thing that they're concerned about. So it's really important that I just make sure we have that framework and understanding. So Leading into that, I really want you to go into the different kinds of stressors now, these low-grade stressors that can commonly be almost overlooked, such as you know physical stressors, mental stressors, emotional, even things like we could call chemical or electromagnetic stress that people are encountering on their day-to-day basis, but over time can begin to fill their bucket. And as their bucket overfills, that's when they begin to get symptoms. So can you go into some of these different types of stressors that really start to tack on and over time can give the same stress response as if you did see that bear in the woods or if you were in that near car crash accident. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the most common stressors today is the mental stressors and the emotional stressors just because of our society and culture. We're just constantly bombarded by information. We're usually got way too much on our agenda. And when we're not working or we're not taking care of the kids or we're not doing any number of things, we're sitting and we're watching the news or we're on social media. And it's just kind of always this state of alertness and things to be stressed about and things to be worried about. And yeah, I think that that has a huge implication. So I think those are some things that can be, obviously testing too is really important to see, okay, where exactly, how exactly is this affecting me? but then also addressing some of those mental and emotional stressors, especially with COVID too. I mean, I think the meter on the mental and emotional stressors got turned all the way up to 11. So it's, yeah, those are ones that I think is kind of the low-hanging fruit. But then there's other ones too that can really impact people in a negative way as well. So like physical stress. So if the body is under physical stress, like if they have nutrient deficiencies, if they're eating foods that are affecting them in a negative way and is putting extra strain on their body. That's a physical stressor. Or if someone might be over-exercising or maybe not exercising enough, these are things that can physically stress the body and put that 
extra stressor on the body. Now, the one area of stress that probably doesn't get as much attention because it's probably not as known is kind of what we'll call chemical stress. And this is more the way I like to think of it is more of kind of hidden secret exogenous chemicals that can get into your body and that can negatively affect your neuroendocrine system. So things like environmental toxins. So all the plastics that we use in society today and in manufacturing and air pollution, heavy metals can seriously alter the HPA axis in your neuroendocrine system and neurotransmitters. I think the use of stimulants too, people don't quite realize the impact that that can have on the HPA axis. So caffeine is the most widely used legal stimulant probably in the world. And that has that will give a huge boost to your HPA axis. But I think over time, and especially with too much, that can run you down. So giving your body some space for that rest and digest, and you don't always have to be on and building that in. And I think reducing uh, stimulant intake is, is probably a good idea to help cope with that. Certain medications too could be considered chemical stressors. So certain medications that can increase or lower cortisol or neurotransmitters. Sometimes there's these side effects with impacts on cortisol or impacts on different neurotransmitters. And because these systems are so interconnected, they have downstream effects that are just not thought of. Yeah. And then there's medications too that can deplete nutrients. So classically, your proton pump inhibitors, things that reduce stomach acid, you're going to you know, decrease the amount of vitamins and minerals you take in, which is going to impact your neurotransmitter production, which is going to impact your ability to innervate the HPA axis. So yeah, that's the medications is a big one. Allergens too, uh, those are you know, kind of a hidden chemical stress that can cause your HPA axis to activate under that inflammatory state. And then food sensitivities and inflammatory foods, I think that is an area that is super useful for individuals to look at. I had a food sensitivity test done somewhat recently and when I made the adjustments in my diet, I felt a huge difference in my overall level of inflammation and my well-being. So I think that's another kind of... That's one that not a lot of people think about just because it's so prevalent in the culture. Gluten kind of being the big one. But yeah, chemical stress. It's uh, definitely worth looking into. Well, those are some huge points you just brought up between the stimulants, which 100% agree. It is the definitely the most widely used coffee in the, in the world, um, stimulant. And, but really that directly impacts our sympathetic nervous system, right? That can directly lead and increase that potential for adrenal fatigue or HPA axis dysfunction, along with these other things that you mentioned from the nutritional deficiencies to some of these heavy metals that are ex we're exposed to on a daily basis. All of these things, it sounds like, are also helpful to identify, are needed to be identified for sure via laboratory testing, and even as you mentioned, nutritional or food sensitivities, but we do need that testing, and we'll go over that in just a bit, because otherwise they're very easily missed, right? They're not, it's not a, a very obvious stressor in our lives, such as I went to the gym and my body is tired, or I worked too many right. hours and my brain is tired. So some of these chemical style stressors, I'm really glad you brought that up. They're really important. I'm going to switch gears here, though, and we talked a little bit about that neuroendocrine system, and I just want you to clarify that for everybody first, and in addition, really relate this back and talk about the HPA axis, which we've been talking about, and how this is just one of many axis systems, quote-unquote, in the body, right? We have the HPA, the hypothalamic-pituitary-thyroid, we have the hypothalamic-pituitary gonadal. And as you mentioned earlier, all of these start in the brain at the hypothalamus and they start to trickle down to their respective organs. So first, can you go over that neuroendocrine system so just everybody knows exactly what you're talking about and how it's related to some of these axis systems and how all these axis systems are impacted by that neuroendocrine and how this is all really one in the same? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point of clarification. So when we talk about the neuroendocrine system, we're talking about primarily the intersection between the, the nervous system, so your nerves and the central nervous system, and the peripheral nervous system and the endocrine systems. So that intersection typically occurs at the hypothalamus and the pituitary. So I think it's important. So when I talk about HPA axis dysfunction and HPA axis function in general, I think it's really hard for me to separate the central nervous system from that because of how significant 
the neurotransmitters are at impacting the HPA axis function. So serotonin helps to increase HPA axis output. That's regulated by exposure to light. So your body follows this really natural circadian rhythm and the neurotransmitters are involved. GABA helps to decrease that HPA axis output. Glutamate helps to increase it. So for me, it's just really hard to silo those systems off because of how interconnected they are. So I think when looking at the HPA axis, it's really important to get the neurotransmitters as well because those are some of the main controllers of these, of your stress response system and of the HPA axis and of your endocrine system. So there's massive downstream effects. Okay, so that's the neuroendocrine system. But when we talk about the other axes, like you were mentioning, like the thyroid and the gonadal systems, these systems are all, they're all interconnected. So they're not separated. So like stress and cortisol, as an example, can inhibit a thyroid function. So it'll decrease the conversion of T4 to T3, which is thyroid hormones and T3 being the more potent thyroid hormone. Stress and cortisol can inhibit the enzyme 1720 lyase. This is super important for the production of your sex hormones. So that ties back into what we were talking about earlier with kind of stress in the HPA axis when it's overactive, shutting down reproduction. And then the gonadal axis also helps to support the neurotransmitters. So these big drivers of the HPA axis are in part supported by your body's production of sex hormones. So like, for example, estrogen really helps to support serotonin in multiple ways. It kind of acts as almost like a natural serotonin reuptake inhibitor in that it helps to decrease cert mRNA expression. Obviously, it's not the same thing as a pharmaceutical SSRI, but it functionally, estrogen has that effect on serotonin. And it also helps the body produce serotonin by inducing the rate-limiting step for serotonin synthesis at tryptophan hydroxylase. Another example would be progesterone helping to support GABA. There's a metabolite of progesterone, um, allopregnenolone, which binds to GABA receptors. So these systems are so intimately connected. I'm really a big believer in casting a pretty wide net when looking at this neuroendocrine system and seeing the neurotransmitters, the adrenal hormones, and the sex hormones to see how can we support various imbalances to get the whole system working. Amazing. I'm so glad you went over that, Nathan. That was a a very, very good explanation of how all of these axis systems are related. And it really comes down to, as you mentioned, really assessing all of these bodily areas and this chronic stress, how these systems become so impacted on one another. And really, again, from the neurotransmitter level down to the organ level, these things can be identified via testing. And we must identify them because if we just take a superficial approach and we don't dive deeper into the root issues, they're commonly missed. So I think you did a really, really nice job of just going down the different systems, how the cortisol impacts the thyroid directly, which can show up on your laboratory result. And in addition to your sex hormones, and it further validates the need to run these additional markers on these laboratory panels, because if we're only running a couple markers and not taking that comprehensive approach, we will miss these findings completely. So I'm really glad that you explained that in detail. So thank you for that. So now that we've covered the fight or flight system and a basic understanding, a little bit more than a basic understanding of the HPA axis system and the neuroendocrine system, I want to now go into something that you mentioned, which is the rest or digest. And this is known as the parasympathetic system, parasympathetic nervous system. So can you explain to everyone what exactly this is? Yeah, so this is kind of the uh, evil twin, or not even the evil, the good twin. If Well, there's not necessarily good or bad here with, the, with your parasympathetic and sympathetic, but it's basically the polar opposite is the better way to say it, of your sympathetic nervous system in that it helps to promote rest and digest and a state of calm and healing for the body and also a state of helping the body just carry on with its normal biological functioning, making your sex hormones, of digesting your food, of resting and healing and controlling inflammation and and all these things and fighting infection. So it's a super important state to kind of be in is this parasympathetic state. Yeah, and it's kind of does the opposite of what the sympathetic state does. So your pupils contract, stimulates 
saliva so you can more quickly digest food. Your airways constrict, your heart rate goes down. So, you know, think of a meditation session. This is your parasympathetic nervous system at work here when you're really in that state of calm and flow. So you're in your stomach acid is working, you can digest food, easier to go to the bathroom in the parasympathetic nervous system state. So that's the ideal state is to spend most of your time there and not in the sympathetic state. Unfortunately, today we primarily spend our time when we're awake and maybe sometimes when we're sleeping for some people, unfortunately, in the sympathetic nervous system state. Yes, no, I agree. That is very, very true. It is, again, that rest or digest, that natural state I think we're supposed to be in. It doesn't seem like we're supposed to be excessively stressed all of the time. I think we're supposed to be naturally relaxed in a relaxing mental state. So thank you for going over that. Now, can you take this a little bit further? And now that we've gone over the duality of the sympathetic versus parasympathetic, you've talked about neurotransmitters. Can you talk a little bit more about the sympathetic versus the parasympathetic and how the neurotransmitters and what neurotransmitters play a role in both of these aspects and how adrenal fatigue is kind of tied into all of this? Sure. Yeah. So some of the big sympathetic nervous system players, so these are your fight and flight response. First responders, I guess, could be a way to think about it, would be epinephrine and norepinephrine as well as glutamate, which is really the primary excitatory neurotransmitter in the central nervous system. And then somewhat dopamine. So it's interesting, there's some studies that show giving things like L-DOPA actually decreases HPA axis output, while other studies seem to suggest that dopamine helps to increase it. So I think one of the possible reasons that might be is the L-DOPA will typically block serotonin, and serotonin is partially responsible for helping to increase HBX's output. So that might be one reason why supplying dopamine in some cases might help to actually decrease uh, cortisol in some patients. But then there's studies that show blocking the receptor of dopamine will, will lower cortisol output. So that's, it's interesting because when you block the receptor, there's not that binding, there's not that signaling. So what that seems to suggest is that dopamine actually plays a role in stimulating HPA axis output and helping to release cortisol. So that's how it could be classified in the sympathetic branch. But it's a little bit more complex than that because some of the studies haven't really fully eludicated that. But primarily, dopamine is a sympathetic nervous system player and driver and helps to increase cortisol levels. Now, in the parasympathetic branch, probably the main driver is going to be GABA. GABA helps to shut down and calm HPA axis output. So it helps to lower high cortisol levels. So I think that's one of the reasons why you find various types of GABA support in a lot of kind of cortisol modulating and lowering products that are out there is that GABA, excuse me, plays a pretty important role in helping to regulate that excess of uh, the stress response. It's actually a study too on patients who are taking benzodiazepines and they tend to exhibit a lower evening cortisol level. So it does seem, GABA does seem to have a pretty profound effect on blunting the cortisol response. And then serotonin too, it's not so clear cut. You know, <laughs> a lot of these neurotransmitters, we truly try our best to classify them in these neat little boxes. But they, you know, the more literature you read, the more you realize just how uh, diverse their functions are. So like serotonin is a great example of that. So I mean, serotonin is very calming neurotransmitter. It promotes mood and well-being, happiness. But you know, at the same time, serotonin can help to increase HPA axis output. So there's a little bit of a conundrum. as So, okay, well, what do you put serotonin in sympathetic or parasympathetic? It doesn't necessarily fit so neatly, in, in my opinion. But some of the consequences of adrenal fatigue that can affect the neurotransmitters in a negative way would be like low cortisol, like if someone's been under chronic stress and their cortisol and their access is starting to run down, low cortisol can hamper the body's ability to bind serotonin in the central nervous system, which can lead to mood issues. Low cortisol actually reduces the conversion of norepinephrine into epinephrine because cortisol is required for that step, for the synthesis and production of of epinephrine. 
yeah, and just I see it all the time on the test results. Over time, when people are under chronic stress, neurotransmitters can really become depleted. And it's probably a multifaceted mechanism of action there. But yeah, the effects of adrenal fatigue or HPA axis dysfunction and chronic stress on your neurotransmitter systems can be quite detrimental. Thanks for going over that. That's really important. And just to clarify for everybody, your dopamine is more often known as your motivational neurotransmitter, right? Serotonin is known as your quote-unquote feel-good chemical, as Nathan's been discussing. So just so that we know the difference there. And, and as you mentioned, GABA is the most inhibitory, I think, neurotransmitter, whereas glutamate, the most abundant excitatory neurotransmitter. Mm-hmm. And what I think is so fascinating, Nathan, is that as far as I know, what connects these two is the cofactor, which is vitamin B6 and how right. all of these different neurotransmitters are actually connected via vitamins and these nutrients. But as we develop chronic stress, a lot of times these nutritional deficiencies start to creep up as well as serotonin needs vitamin B6. And a lot of these other neurotransmitters and hormones, obviously they all need nutrients. Can you discuss a little bit some of these nutritional components of the neurotransmitters, how this is all tied in and related and And as you're putting, it's so important to also be testing for these things and to really analyze this because on paper, we're able to see this versus if someone comes in with just clinical symptoms, it may be commonly missed and can commonly be overlooked. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite amazing. I mean, just the point about the glutamate and GABA. I mean, they're polar opposites, but yet they come from the same family, the same biochemical family where there's one enzymatic step to make GABA from glutamate. And you're right, vitamin B6, the active form, pyridoxal 5-phosphate, is necessary for that enzyme to to function. So yeah, I mean, these enzymes and these neurotransmitters that are produced via the enzymes really rely on essential vitamins and minerals um, and various kind of metabolic cofactors for their production. So like methylation is a great example of this. If you don't have adequate methylation processes in your body, if you don't have a properly functioning folic acid cycle or homocysteine methionine cycle, that's going to negatively impact your neurotransmitter production, particularly your serotonin production, as well as your catecholamine neurotransmitters like dopamine and norepinephrine, because there's a kind of a side chain to that, the um, biopterin uh, cycle that's connected to your folate cycle and tetrahydrobiopterin or BH4 is, is really important for the production of your serotonin and your dopamine because there's some enzymes in those pathways that rely on BH4. So this is just an example of how important getting your nutrients are. You know, if you have issues metabolizing folic acid, then you're going to have a hard time making neurotransmitters. So it's, that's just one example, but B, vitamin B12 is involved, but vitamin B6 is involved. Vitamin C is involved, magnesium is involved in a lot, vitamin B2 or riboflavin. So yeah, you can't stress, well, don't stress, but (laughs) you can't stress enough the importance of having adequate nutrients for neuroendocrine function, which is why, at least from for Sonesco and some of our uh, formulas that we have for practitioners to consider using in their patients, we do have a lot of these activated forms of the nutrients to help provide adequate synthesis and function of these neurotransmitters. Thanks for going over that. I love the points you went into. And it's so true. The bottom line is we could go down this rabbit hole of how many body systems and how many different chemical and biochemical pathways are affected by nutrients from the neurotransmitter production to you can look at and tie your B vitamins, B6, B12 folic acid to your red blood cells. And so somebody can develop a new mm. and how all of these things are related. And this is, again, further reason why we need to look for the root causes. We really need to identify all of these different body areas because if one is overlooked, you can completely disregard it and miss the entire problem in the first place. So I'm so glad that you went over that. So thank you for that, Nathan. Now, I really want to go over because I think most of our listeners now understand adrenal fatigue, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis system dysfunction, and all things related to stress and cortisol. But 
we can't get away from stress. We know that. And in this day and age, stress is usually on the rise. So what are some ways in which someone can enhance or upregulate or balance this parasympathetic, that rest or digest with this sympathetic nervous system, which is, again, commonly in excess in today's day and age? Yeah, that's a great question. So I don't want to sound like a broken record, but I think testing the neuroendocrine system is hugely important to see exactly what an individual's unique imbalances are because everyone's different. So I think one, testing for these things, getting ahead of the curve on this, and actually getting to some of the root of why the parasympathetic nervous system is not fully engaged. But then there's a lifestyle approach to this, I firmly believe as well. And I really do think one of the things that an individual can do to help promote a parasympathetic nervous system activity is just to say no more often. (laughs) So not to overcommit. I think in today's day and age, it's so easy just to go, 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 go and do, 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 do. And there's no time for rest and digest. I mean, you can't if you're constantly stimulated and you're constantly under stress and you're saying yes to too many things. So I just think um, saying no is important with all the things that you can do today. I also have found quite useful deep breathing exercises personally. And I think there is something to be said. I haven't reviewed the literature that in depth, but I would not be surprised if there's some major stimulation of the vagus nerve with some deep belly breathing. I've personally found that extremely relaxing and it just seems to calm me down very quickly. And then supporting the neurotransmitters, I think testing them first is really important to see which ones are imbalanced and what amounts of the different neurotransmitter support nutrients are needed. But I think especially, I mean, I see so often people with suboptimal or low levels of GABA. I'd say that's the most common trend I see on some of the neuroendocrine test results. And I think really helping to support some of these low GABA levels can really help balance the HPA axis, especially when it's kind of on fire. That makes a lot of sense. And I love how you said we have to start saying no more. So I think that means that Jim Carrey should come out with a movie instead of Yes Man, it's No Man. (laughs) (laughs) No Man. (laughs) And yes, you made some really good points there. And you also mentioned belly breathing. Can you briefly discuss the vagus nerve, which is the 10th cranial nerve, and how that really impacts this parasympathetic, this inhibitory neurotransmitter pathway in the body as well? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't understand all the intricacies super in depth, but my basic understanding of this is that the parasympathetic nervous system is activated when the vagus nerve is stimulated via the gut to the brain. Um, and it, it kind of, my understanding is it kind of just signals the brain that everything is okay uh, and kind of well with the world. I couldn't tell you exactly what chemicals are firing or what enzymes are at play or things like that. But yeah, it's the interconnectedness of the body. And it's this whole body connection that I think we're lacking so much. I'd be really curious to dig more into the science of it, honestly, but just don't overcommit. (laughs) But yeah, I think, I really do think there's something there to the whole body kind of being aware of the body and this bodily awareness and like getting into the stomach. So feeling the stomach and thinking about the stomach and focusing on the stomach and focusing on different parts of your body really helps to bring this whole body awareness that does bring about this sense of calm because I think so frequently we're up in our heads and I think anxiety lives in our heads. And when it lives in our heads, it can really affect the body in a negative way because that signaling on that vagus nerve can go, it goes both ways. So yeah, your brain can tell your body I'm stressed and then your body's going to respond to that in a negative way. So yeah, I really do think there is something there and I'm sure there's already been literature done on it, but I just haven't investigated it on the deep breathing and especially belly breathing and nasal nose breathing and activating this parasympathetic nervous system. Nathan, you have a wealth of knowledge, so I'm sure there's plenty for everybody to research. So you've been doing a great job today and giving us some really, really good information. And I love how you were discussing that depth and the coordination between the brain and the belly. And we know that brain-gut axis is connected via that vagus nerve. So I think it also is very important. There is a lot of literature in that area. So you talked about some of the laboratory tests and how that is important. Can you go over, though, some of the different types of testing that people can start to 
look into so that they know that, okay, if they are experiencing maybe some of this adrenal style fatigue or HPA axis dysfunction, that there are answers, that there is some hope Mm. that they can get to the root issue of their problem. And if you can discuss the different types from there's now blood testing, there's saliva testing, there's urine testing, and just give everybody kind of a, a, an understanding of this. Sure, yeah. So I'm a big believer, and I've been with Sonesco now for almost seven years. I'm a real big believer in the HPAG complete profile from Sonesco, and it's assessing the major neurotransmitters, the adrenal hormones, cortisol and DHEA, and the sex hormones. So this is the most comprehensive profile from Sonesco. And this is what I would recommend for individuals to speak to their uh, healthcare practitioners about in assessing and helping to identify some HPA axis dysfunction. Because like I was saying, is you know all these systems are super interconnected. And for me, you can't just test one or the other. It really comes down to getting a complete snapshot of that whole neuroendocrine system. So it's super important to measure the neuroendocrine system. And I see lots of individuals benefiting from the most comprehensive profile from Sonesco. So yeah, different types of testing methods. So yeah, the neurotransmitters, those are typically done in urine. We do a urine analysis and we do a second urine sample of the day. So patients need to avoid their first sample because that urine sample is too concentrated. So the second urine sample we found to be the best reflection of kind of basal neurotransmitter function. You can also, I mean, I've seen tests that do dried urine. A lot of that is a little bit more novel. I can't really speak to the efficacy of that. I'm sure something's there, but the second urine of the day and the liquid urine with the preservatives that we have, I think is a really tried and true method of analyzing the neurotransmitters. So for the hormones, we do salivary hormones. So those can also be done in urine and blood. So for the adrenal hormones, there's not a lot of debate about this, at least in the integrative functional medicine industry. Salivary adrenal hormones is, from what I understand, considered the gold standard of adrenal assessment. So that's what we do because a serum, I mean, if someone were to do, and this is one of the issues I have with some of the different allopathic tests for adrenal health, is that it's a lot of it's serum, but just the invasive nature of a serum test can alter adrenal hormone results. So when you're stressed, you're going to have more norepinephrine and more epinephrine and more cortisol. So just simply being stuck by a needle could affect the results on a blood test. So yeah, I'm a big believer in the the salivary because it's non-invasive. And then with the sex hormones, yeah, I mean, there's some debate as to what's the best way to measure salivary sex hormones. Uh, You know, the literature shows a pretty good correlation between salivary sex hormone status and serum or blood sex hormone status. So I think it's not a huge point to kind of differ over. It's definitely not apples to oranges. It is apples to apples, but it's, it's more like kind of Granny Smith to Red Delicious. It should generally correlate salivary test results with blood test results for the sex hormones. And I think because of the non-invasive nature, and I think it's also important to get the sex hormones on the same day that you're getting the neurotransmitters and the adrenal hormones, which I think makes the HPAG complete profile so useful is that you're getting this all in the same day because hormones can fluctuate, neurotransmitters can fluctuate. And it's when you're getting these all in the same day, you really can see the interconnections between the system. So that's my opinion on the various types. I don't think there's necessarily like a wrong way, a right way to do it. I think our method and the one that I'm most familiar with, we see incredible results with, and it's really tried and, and tested. There's some really, really great points. I think, as you mentioned, timing is extremely important in all types of testing as people might have different results. You can certainly have different results at different times of day, different times of the month, whether you're taking certain medications or nutritional supplements. So very good point in that, as well as the blood testing. There's something called a white coat syndrome, as well as just getting stuck by a needle (laughs) can simply increase your blood pressure, increase your cortisol. So that's me. (laughs) (laughs) Totally understands. But 
Yeah, definitely something to take into consideration. I'm really glad you went over that. So thank you. Nathan, it's been such a pleasure to have you on today. We've had some really, really great conversation. I have two last questions for you. What does the future of HPA access or adrenal fatigue treatment possibly look like? Is there a treatment? Mm. Is there a future for this? Do you think that it will continue to expand? Yeah, that's a great question. My hope is that the natural therapies that are already available are just going to become more mainstream and are going to come into the light and as, as deemed as the future. But even though the future is kind of already now, in my opinion, with the use of some of these supplements and these nutrients to help improve HPA axis dysfunction. So things like 5-HTP for serotonin, L-theanine for GABA and some different adaptogenic herbs to help improve HPA axis functioning. Yeah, so I really think the future is... I mean, there's probably other things that will be developed, but I really think there's so much untapped there that so much of society could benefit from. That really is the future, in my opinion, is just that getting back to basics and getting back to the earth and getting natural with our interventions to help improve HB access dysfunction. And I think the testing, the neuroendocrine testing really sheds light onto that and which therapies might be most appropriate for individuals. I couldn't agree more. And I think that conservative approach is definitely the first step that must be taken and must be assessed when looking at HB access dysfunction. All right, Nathan, final question here for you today. If you could give one tip to someone that is listening with HPX dysfunction or adrenal fatigue and they've identified this or they haven't identified it, whatever spectrum that they may be in at this point in time, what would that be? Hmm. Well, if it's unidentified, the first thing I would recommend is to go get tested. But then in addition to everything else that we've talked about, I really would just drive home the point of really being cognizant of the amount of hurry in your life and really working to eliminate excess busyness, excess hurry, and making time to sit and be with your body and get into your body, into, yeah, especially in today's day and age, limit that exposure to social media and news. Nothing wrong with checking it. What I would offer as a consideration to folks is just to keep it to a minimum. I completely agree as a very, very valid point. Nathan, again, such a pleasure to have you on today. We had some really, really great conversation. You gave us some really, really good feedback. I'm sure our audiences highly value what you had mentioned today. And for everybody listening, Nathan, where can everybody find you? Yeah, so you can find me on LinkedIn, Nathan Bridges. I'm the clinical support manager at Sinesco. I'm not a clinician myself, but under the guidance of our chief medical officer, Dr. Roy Watkins. Amazing. Again, Nathan, thank you for being on the podcast today. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Awesome. Thank you, Anthony. It was such a pleasure. Had a blast. The Root Cause Medicine podcast is brought to you by Rupa Health. To find out more about us and how we are changing the lives of patients and practitioners across the U.S., head to rupahealth.com. And then make sure to search for Root Cause Medicine in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere good podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Rupa Health, thanks for listening.